ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to the Fresh Frozen Southerner podcast. My name is Jay. I hope all is well. All right, guys, as promised, I have got a little bit of a history lesson for us today. But before we get into that, I would like to touch on two subjects real fast. The first is last episode, I jokingly said that with Putin acting as irrational as he is, it's hard to tell what he's going to do. He may wake up tomorrow and decide to nuke everybody. Well, the very next day, he put his nuclear facility people on high alert. Now, that is most likely just him bluffing. He's trying to deter anybody from stepping in and helping Ukraine. I feel like he did not do that immediately because he just assumed that his troops would roll over Ukraine. And before anybody had a chance to respond, he would have control of the country. By that point, it'd be too late. There'd be really nothing anybody could do. I don't think he expected Ukraine to put up the fight that they're that they're giving them. I really thought that he would just have control of Ukraine in a day or two and he could put all this stuff to bed. And he's finding himself in the position where he has got to sort of guard against anybody coming to Ukraine's aid because, again, they're putting up a pretty good fight and it would not take a huge amount of military assistance to really put this thing over the top where his troops would most likely get pushed out of the Ukraine. But just to step things up a little bit further into the Looney Tunes section of life, Putin, a couple days after he put his nuclear facilities on high alert, threatened countries that if they tried to interfere, he would destabilize the International Space Station in orbit and drop the remnants of that station onto whatever country piqued his ire. Now, Putin has the name of a Bond villain, but that does not mean that he has got to behave like one. I mean... Vladimir Putin sounds like a cartoon character villain. If if you were writing a story and you were trying to think of a name for the evil bad guy and you considered Vladimir, you would stop and you would say, no, nah, that's a little too on the nose. That's going to bump people out of the story. But he is acting like a flipping Bond villain right now, which, you know, number one, there are Russian cosmonauts on the International Space Station right now. I'd love to know how they feel about Putin threatening to give them a one-way ride on a kinetic bomb. But number two, I'm sure it's possible for him to somehow send the space station out of orbit and send it back to Earth. But there is a reason that bombs and missiles are designed with a very aerodynamic shape. That makes them stable in flight, and it allows you to control where they hit. The International Space Station looks like you welded a bunch of buses together. Once that thing hits the atmosphere, there's no telling how it's going to break up, where the pieces are going to go. I mean, they're going to be spinning all over the place. That thing could land, you know, parts of that thing could land 5,000 miles away from each other. There's no way you could put that on a target. So I'm not sure, other than the fact that he has just absolutely lost his mind, I don't know what he's trying to prove with that. It's making me think that, you know, honestly, I know we have a moratorium on assassinating other countries' leaders. We may want to rethink that with him because this guy has got access to a lot of nuclear weapons and not a lot of gray matter. And that's the way it seems that you know, we're going to have to deal with this nut job one way or the other. And he's not just going to go away. He's not going to be satisfied with Ukraine. He's going to keep pushing. We're going to have to deal with him at some point. And maybe we could do it before he starts dropping kinetic bombs out of space, just hoping they'll hit on somebody he doesn't like. Okay, guys, the next topic I want to touch on real quickly is I want to revisit the Joe Rogan issue. Um, Now, I'm behind the times on this. I think all this stuff happened a few weeks ago. 
Uh, but number one, I found out what it was that he said that's got the woke mob in such a twist or what they're what they're claiming is what's got their ire up. Joe Rogan repeated rap lyrics and he said the N-word several times. Now, he did not call anyone the N-word. He was repeating lyrics to a song. And I'm sure a lot of these songs have been broadcast on the radio. Those words have been spoken into a microphone hundreds of thousands of times, probably. But for some reason, it's an issue when Joe Rogan does it. Now, it's not that Joe Rogan said it. It's that that is the opening that the woke mob is using to try to get some leverage on him. Because we all know when Joe Rogan was repeating song lyrics, he was not doing it maliciously. And there is a huge difference between repeating the lyrics of a song and calling someone the N-word. And let's stop pretending that there isn't a difference between those two things. You know, I can understand just because of the political blowback you're going to get, it's probably not the best idea to say it. But we have got to stop dividing who can say a word. Either the word is offensive and it shouldn't be used, or everybody can say it. This is just another situation where they're trying to divide the country into separate little groups. It's making it harder for our society to run. It's not a good idea where this stuff is going. But really what I wanted to talk about concerning Joe Rogan is, is he made a cardinal mistake, I feel like, and a couple of weeks ago he issued an apology video. 30 years ago, making a public apology was actually a smart thing in a lot of situations. You, know, you get out ahead of it, you say, you know, listen, I didn't mean anything by this, uh, but I understand why people are upset, and I apologize, and I'll never do it again. And a lot of times when people would do that, that was the end of the story. That's not how it is today. The woke mob does not want you to apologize. They want to destroy you. And when you apologize over something like this, you're basically telling them that they are correct in what they were accusing you of. And the only thing it does, it's like blood in the water. They're going to come back after you. You have satiated them. You've, you've put the saucer of milk out for the stray cat. It's going to come back looking for more milk. And Joe Rogan should not have apologized. What he should have done was make a video saying, you know, look, I was repeating song lyrics. I was not doing it to attack anybody. I didn't do anything wrong, and you guys can go screw yourself. Because if you watch situations like this over the last few years, the only time people don't get taken down is when they don't apologize, when they tell these people to go pound sand. The people that have done that, the woke mob just goes somewhere else. You know, they, they didn't get what they wanted, and they go looking for it from somebody else. And that's what you've got to do. And I understand it's easy for me to say that because if the woke mob came after me for some strange reason and I got canceled, I'm out, you know, a few hours of my time and maybe like $200 for equipment. Joe Rogan has millions of listeners. He's got a huge audience. It's probably a ridiculous amount of money at stake if his listenership gets gets taken down or if he gets deplatformed. I understand that it's a different situation. But these people are not coming for an apology. They're coming for Joe Rogan's head, and they are not going to leave him alone just because he apologized. And as ridiculous as it sounds, he should never have done it. Well, it's not ridiculous because, again, he didn't do anything. He wasn't trying to hurt anybody. The intent of something matters as much as what happened. And if somebody means no offense you're just being juvenile and obstinate if you say, well, I'm taking offense anyway. You know, there used to be a thing called being an adult. 
I'm sure everybody's heard this statement. They haven't heard it in the last years, except ironically, the sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. That meant that you were supposed to be mature enough and above getting your feelings hurt, no matter what somebody says, even if they were legitimately trying to hurt your feelings, you're not supposed to let it bother you. Unfortunately for our society, to reach that point, you also have to reach a level of maturity and have a little something called character. A lot of people don't have that anymore. But that's just my two cents on the matter. It really doesn't matter what I think. Um, very few people are going to hear that anyway, so so it really doesn't matter. Joe Rogan can do what he wants to do. I just kind of feel like he did the wrong thing, and it's not going to serve him well in the long run. But let's uh, let's get to the meat of the episode, which, as I said, I've got one of my half-assed history lessons. And again, this comes from the legends and myths of my Appalachian hometown. Not my town specifically, but we were right on the fringe of where this particular incident occurred. Okay, now I've spoken about settlers moving into the mountains of the Appalachians before. Now, it, the Piedmont of Virginia and the coastal areas and in North Carolina, uh, those were settled. And then it was a, quite a long time before people actually started moving into the mountains, uh, both because there was a treaty with the Indians that said that the English settlers would not go past a certain line and into the mountains. Uh, but also, I've said before that the eastern edge of the Appalachian Mountains is it's not the type of topography where you have rolling hills that just get higher and higher and then you're in the mountains. It's an escarpment. And an escarpment is a geological term. It basically means a wall. And if you look at photos of like a fancy gap from North Carolina all the way through Virginia, there is no gradually going into the mountains. It's you're in these very low rolling hills and then you go up about a thousand feet and you're in the mountains. And it literally looks just like a cliff that runs across two states. And if I was a settler in the 1600s and I was standing in those hills and looking at that, it absolutely would kill my motivation to go any further. Because number one, there's no roads. Uh, it was just footpaths and game trails. So you were going to have to walk, or if you tried to take a wagon, you would spend most of your day cutting down little trees to get your get your possessions through. I can understand why that slowed a lot of people down. Quite honestly, I would probably stand there thinking, well, let's wait about 300 years and see if they'll build Interstate 77, and then it'd be a lot easier to get up there. But people did move into the mountains. They broke the treaty with the Indians, and they did move into the the Shawnee and Cherokee Nation Indian lands. Well, when they got to the region called the Appalachian Highlands, which covers southwest Virginia, uh, parts of Kentucky, and parts of Tennessee, what they started to find was that there were already people there, not the Indians. There was another group of people. And you don't hear about this a lot in history. I think all through middle school and high school, I can remember one of my history textbooks had a photo of the Melungian people. It was a very small section of the book. I don't remember exactly what it said. That is the only reference to the Melungians that I ever remember seeing in all the history classes I took all through school. Now, the Melungian people, they were not Native Americans. They were not European. They were not African. They looked to be a blend of several different ethnicities. And according to the Indians and the history of the Melungian people themselves, it was said that they had been there for generations. They should not have been there for generations. Nobody knew where they came from, how they got to be there. Now, they lived alongside the Indians 
but they did not live in the Indian communities. They they had very European looking farmsteads. You know, the houses looked just like what you would see in colonial Virginia, North Carolina. Uh, they spoke English. A lot of them were Christians, oddly. And there's so many legends and guesses about how these people came to be there, uh, you know, where they come from, what exactly was their ancestry. And there's a lot of wild tales out there. You know, one of the craziest is that it was one of the lost tribes of Israel. A lot of people suggested that these were descendants of Portuguese sailors, that maybe they got blown off course in a storm, you know, long before official European colonization started and they'd been shipwrecked and they just where they wound up. There's more to the story about the Portuguese. We'll get to that in just a minute. Uh, but one of the more rational, if maybe not more believable, but one of the more sensible explanations was that in 1540, Hernando de Soda was a Spanish conquistador, and he was in the state of Florida, or what would become the state of Florida. And he went north with an expedition again in 1540, uh, about 650 men, and he actually reached the Appalachian Highlands. He's credited as being the first European to set foot in the Tennessee Valley. Now, DeSoto had a bit of a reputation for being tyrannical. A lot of people say he was actually pretty cruel to his men. So one of the theories regarding the Melungeons is that you know he had African slaves with him. He had soldiers. Uh, he had craftsmen and you know the people that need to follow along with an expedition like that to keep uh, shoes on the horses, repair damaged equipment, things like that. One of the theories was that while they were in the Tennessee Valley, a number of his men deserted, uh, set up homesteads, intermarried with the Indians, and that is the genesis of the Melungeon people. But the Melungeons were just uh, just part of Appalachian life. It, they were not treated as outcasts. We have church records that show they were just members in good standing. Uh, we have records from doctors, records from the census that the Melungeons were just considered a a part of the culture there. They were not treated as outcasts. There was not a lot of racial disparity going on because in, in that time, in these little isolated communities up in the mountains, people depended on their neighbors to an extent that we just simply don't have a frame of reference for now. These little communities, you might have 20 people and you depended on your neighbors to help you build a barn, you know, to help you work the fields. You were going and helping them repair stuff and work the fields. People needed their neighbors, and the only thing that really mattered was, is that individual there when you need him? Is he a good citizen of the community? You know, little petty stuff like, you know, what does he look like? That just simply didn't factor in. You needed the help of the people around you to survive. And when you spend a lot of your time trying to survive, the, the petty stuff just simply doesn't matter a great deal. So the Melungeons were treated as just part of the community. Uh, they had the right to vote, uh, the men, not the women, let's not go crazy, but they were treated just as free citizens. But the legends and you know the mystery of where they came from has lasted a long time. And the majority of the people in that time just sort of assumed that, well, this is just another indigenous people. You know, they're different from the Cherokee and the Shawnee Indians, but they're just an indigenous people that got stirred into the melting pot and it's no big deal. But as I've said before, never let the truth stand in the way of a good story. And unfortunately, most of what I just told you is not true and was never true. Genealogists have traced back, like I said, there was records, there's birth records, marriages, church roles, 
there's all kinds of records on these families, and they could trace back the family through their movements in the colonies. And most of the families, probably not all of them, but the vast majority of people that identify as Melungeon can be traced back to colonial Virginia and North Carolina. Now, in the early 1600s, before the slave trade really got going and before the races were stratified and, you know, people were just kind of people. If you've got a small group of people, little minor differences don't matter. And along with the European settlers, there were also free blacks, uh, people from the Iberian Peninsula. You know, there were plenty of different races in the colonies. And interracial marriages and interracial children were not as uncommon as you would think that they are. Again, if you have a small population, people are still going to pair off. They're still going to have children. The smaller the pool of candidates you have to draw from, you're going to take what you can get at some point. Also, in 1662, Virginia enacted a law based on the principle of partus sequitur ventrum, which basically said... Whatever the social status of your mother is the social status that the baby would receive. So if the mother was a slave, the child was born and was considered a slave. But if the mother was an indentured servant or a seamstress or a milkmaid or some sort of a working free person, that was the social status of the baby also. Whether the parent, uh, the father was a slave or an indentured servant or what have you. So you had a large group of racially diverse people in the Virginia, North Carolina colonies that were referred to as free people of color. Now, these people started moving into the Appalachians the same as the white Europeans did. Now, they sort of intermarried for a generation or two, but that over time that became diluted. Again, you have a small pool of possible marriage candidates. You kind of take what you can get and you know they would intermarry with the Europeans. There is a little bit of intermarriage with the Native Americans, not a great deal. But as racial tensions grew, as the slavery trade grew, a lot of these people that were considered Melungeons, they tried to move away from being classified as African American. Now, as the said racial tensions began to build in the in the colonies, a lot of the Melungeons, well, first of all, you start to see the term Melungeon applied as a pejorative. Uh, we've all heard the term mulatto. It's something you probably haven't heard, or at least I wasn't familiar with it, was the term musty, which was reference to a child born of mixed European and Native American heritage. Uh, but Melungeon just described this group of people for a long time, but it started to be viewed as a pejorative. So a lot of these Melungeons started to claim ancestry from somewhere other, somewhere where people were a little more swarthy, complected, had dark eyes, dark hair. A lot of those people started to say that they were Portuguese descents, which is where the, the stories about Portuguese sailors getting shipwrecked on the coast of America came from. Uh, but another thing that a lot of people would say was they would claim that they were Cherokee. And you hear a lot of times it became very common for a Melungeon to say, I have a Cherokee grandmother. Now, I found this very interesting because I've mentioned before that whenever you talk to someone that claims that they have Cherokee ancestrage, when you ask them about it, they always say, and when I say always, I mean 100% of the time, they will always say it's my grandmother on my mother's side. And when I say that, I'm including some in-laws that I have. Now, I ran this line of thought past my wife last night, and she had a thoughtful look on her face for a couple of minutes, and she said, you know, nobody really 
could t- ever tell me anything about that side of the family. Um, even she was very close with her grandmother. Her grandmother passed away maybe 10 years ago. Uh, so her grandmother was alive well into my wife's adulthood. She said, except for her grandmother's father, her grandmother could really tell her nothing about the rest of her family. It was like everything was just a big mystery. Nobody ever talked about it. So now I'm kind of thinking, did I marry in, into a Melungian family? Because that that sounds like, and this is based on nothing but speculation. I have no evidence one way or the other. Maybe they do have some Cherokee blood in them. But genealogists have sort of put that possibility to bed because most of the Melungian families can be traced back to the Tidewater region of Virginia. And the Cherokee Nation did not extend into that part of Virginia. So there were no Cherokee Indians where these families originated. So how in the world would there be Cherokee ancestors in their family? And since we're in the modern era, science has gotten involved. There are several universities that have done DNA sampling from Melungian family lines. And what they have found is that the Melungians were a mix of mostly African-American and Northern European ancestry. Now, there were a few family lines that did have a little bit of Native American DNA, very little bit, though. There were a few families of the Melungians that did have some Portuguese or Spanish DNA, again, a very small portion of the population. This was mostly just Northern Europeans and African Americans intermarrying during the colonial period or once they got into the very isolated Appalachian Mountains. And all the stories, all the myths, all the folklore has just grown up over time. This was really never a mystery. In the 1960s, there was a playwright that wrote a play and produced the play. The production was put on in the Appalachian Mountains, uh, in Kentucky, Tennessee, and Virginia mainly. But it treated the Melungians as an indigenous people. And that might have really cemented that in the cultural consciousness, that the Melungians had been here for generations before the whites started moving into the mountains. But unfortunately, the Melungeons were never a mystery. They immigrated with their white neighbors in the late 1600s, early 1700s. They were given land grants alongside the white Europeans. You know, all this stuff is on record. It's just folklore and myth have taken over the truth at some point. And like I say, it was always a mystery culturally growing up. That, you know, where the Melungians came from. Uh, the reality is, is that it was never a mystery. We knew exactly where these families came from. Leave it to science and researchers to just suck every bit of the mystery and romance out of life. But I hope you found that little tale interesting. Uh, that was always sort of one of the local mysteries when I was growing up. Uh, turns out it's just as mundane as most most other things are if you really dig into them. And don't get me wrong, it's it's good that we have the information. It's all You're always better off knowing than not knowing. But it did take a lot of the fun out of it, I'm afraid. All right, guys, that is about all I've got for you today. I hope you enjoyed today's show. If you did, please leave me a like and a comment. And as always, a subscription would be greatly appreciated. You can leave me a comment at freshfrozensoutherner at gmail.com or on the Fresh Frozen Southerner Facebook page. All right, guys, I hope your work week is off to a good start. Get out and enjoy some of the weather we're expecting, uh, looking more like spring. I, I don't buy it for a second up here. I keep waiting to walk out to a foot of snow and it'd be 15 degrees, and it probably will happen. But through the week, it's actually supposed to be pretty nice. So get out and enjoy some sunshine, and we will talk again very soon. Thank you very much.